to Diversity Rocks Innovation, Volume 14. My name is Jackie Steele. I'm a Canadian political scientist living and teaching in Japan and also the CEO of Enjoy Diversity and Innovation. Enjoy is a Japan-based, global-facing business working in English and Japanese and sometimes in French. And we support leaders and corporations in building out diversity, positive workplaces and corporate cultures. We know that diversity rocks innovation. We know that diversity rocks innovation under certain conditions. Systemic inequality undermines innovation and it undermines diversity. So we're, introduced, we're interested really in building out inclusive innovation. Innovation that really amplifies and supports equity, equality, and that powers our people systems for personal and collective good and for the long game. We're talking legacy. So this live stream shines a spotlight on the diversity of Enjoy Thought partners in our network. These are wonderfully dynamic uh, thought, uh, thought leading and pioneering individuals who really have shown up for this vision of how to build out a diversity positive environment in Japan. And they support women's leadership, men's leadership, and they understand that diversity is everywhere. So each week I invite one of my Enjoy Thought Partners to Thought Partner Out Loud with me organically. It's a collegial exchange of expertise and worldviews of talking about who we are and what our internal diversities are and why that can move the dial for innovation. So we throw away the business cards in terms of senpai kohai dynamics or you know, hierarchies based on age or, or gender or race or other facets that really slow us down in society and only build up bridges um, that block us or walls that keep us apart. So today we're going to Thought Partner Out Loud and I am so excited to welcome on today's show a wonderful thought partner and a business mentor to me, Brian Sherman. Brian, welcome to Diversity Rocks Innovation Volume 14. Thank you for joining me. Thank you very much, Jackie. Thank you for that introduction. So, Brian, I mean, you've sort of been such a, a fabulous behind the scenes person supporting my fledging journey into being an entrepreneur over the last two years and and you've helped me figure out a lot of things and i i'm grateful for that you've obviously you're 10 years ahead of me on this journey and i want you to share about that journey but before we get to that yeah. i kind of really want to know and i want our listeners to get the benefit of doing a little bit of a deep dive first into what makes Brian tick and what are the sort of pivotal experiences and diversities and values that you've mm -hmm. built yourself around and your your unique individuality so can we okay. maybe step back and go a little bit back in time first and yeah. think about where you where are you from yep okay well it all begins you know, <laughs> small <laughs> on an island in uh, new york city actually i was born in brooklyn but i was raised in on an island uh staten island um but i think probably my my sense of who i am today I mean, I can really come back to an experience I had at age 13. I mean, at age 13, I, I'm still talking about that now that I'm not yet 50, but you know, getting close, closer to that. So, um, but so many years ago, that first experience of coming to Japan, which was my first experience to leave my native land um, and to come and a student exchange all the way across the world. And I think what, what really struck me so much at that time was while I appreciated the cultural differences, I appreciated Tokyo for what Tokyo is and how it's, you know, it's, it's, it clearly is superficially very different than, uh, than New York, where I came from. I was so struck by the interconnectedness that I felt with people, you know? Um, so it was 10, 10 Americans, 10 Japanese, and, you know, we were young, 12, I don't know, 13, 14 years old. And uh, we laughed, we cried, we had fun, you know, we're pubescent, you know, so whatever goes along with all that. And I just thought, you know, here it is, I'm, I'm in a country that's supposed to be so different, but I didn't feel that it was so different. I actually felt more of a commonality and a familiarity, familiarity, that's a difficult word to say, um, with, you know, being in Japan, which led me to, I remember when we're all getting on the bus and saying goodbye and everybody else is crying. I wasn't crying. 
I wasn't crying because I, I, I knew I'd be back, you know? Mm. So for me, it wasn't goodbye. It was just see you later. And, and I did, and I came back when I was in high school. I spent a month. I was a American representative to a summer camp, um, which recently has somewhat gone defunct, but uh, that was a camp, a international camp called Pacific Rim International Camp in Tokyo in Nagano, um, related to a camp that I had gone to during my freshman and uh, sophomore year summers uh, of high school in New York City, in New, sorry, New York State in Rhinebeck called uh, Camp Rising Sun, which also was a very global camp. My campmates were from all around the world. I had a, very close friend from Texas who, for the first time, met a Jewish person you know, in my family. My second year, I was very close with a guy from Nicaragua who had, uh, who was 13 or 14 when he was drafted into the, uh, the Sandinistan army to, uh, wow. you know, to fight um, against, you know, the, I think it was the Contras, if I'm getting that correct, you know, which was supported by the U.S. government. So there it is, my my campmate is somebody that just a wow. few months previously, the, you know, my, my own government was probably supporting, you know, uh, the fight against. So, you know, meeting people from all around the world, even before I got into college, definitely shaped my worldview of thinking, you know, it's, the, you know, the, I do have identity. I have identity in who I am and where I come from, but I didn't necessarily think that I needed to stick with that same group. Right. You know? And so, so here it is. Uh, so many years later, I'm happily living in Tokyo and uh, enjoying this kind of international global experience, which I get every day by being right here in, in Tokyo. Do you, I mean, what a fascinating opportunity and at such a very, frankly, young age that you would be going all the way to Japan at age 13. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, not only as a parent, that kind of makes me go, oh, my, you know, my daughter's 10 and that's, wow, three yeah. years out. Wow. Um, but also, I mean, this, this camp you mentioned, uh, the rising sun was it a yeah. japan actually created from japan no was it wasn't it, it had nothing States? to do with japan it just happened to be you know called camp rising sun it was started in 19 in the 1930s by a philanthropist named uh, freddie jonas who started the camp and originally it was a camp for new york city boys so think about you know new york city boys summertime get out of new york city i mean everybody goes upstate you know upstate is what we call it upstate new york and uh in the first year or two, the international campers came from Western Europe. And over the years, the camp was still predominantly made up of New York City um, young adults, but ultimately they were representations from people from all around the world. Uh, a few years later, I, there was an Israeli camper in my, in my year. A few years later, they had the Israeli camper and a Palestinian camper you know, together at camp, mm. you know, two people that probably wouldn't have gotten together, you know, within their own, you know, uh, natural you know, home environments. Right. And they were able to sort of spend a summer together uh, there. But I had uh, campmates from all around the world. And, uh, you know, just uh, that that experience of living with people from all around the world opened me up. And, and ultimately, I, I kind of walk away with less of a sense of the differences you know, the differences are all on individual level, of course. I mean, there are, you know, but, but I, you focus more on, okay, well, where are we all the same? You know, and I find that interconnectedness um, is, is something that absolutely affects the values and, you know, the choices I've made in my, in my life uh, since then. So I can, I can imagine, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think what a beautiful first also experience for so many young men into the mm -hmm. sheer diversity of men and, yep. and the sheer diversity of masculinities yep. that are existing yep. on the planet around the world mm -hmm. so that you don't also maybe box yep. yourself in as a what does it mean to be a man or a real man do this and we have some fairly yep. narrow cultural tropes mm -hmm. in in north america or in europe or in different countries that box men in and yeah. but you 
you connected with all different types of men and young yeah, men. Yeah, definitely. I mean, and, you know, they were, and we had different activities. I mean, we had the activities from arts and crafts to hiking and canoeing. Um, now, in 1989, the, there was also the girls' camp was founded. So it actually was a camp for boys from, 19, from the 1930s to 1989. And then the, the girls' camp comes. And the girls' campus was um, a distance from the boys' campus. But uh, you can imagine on days that we all got together, you know, the, uh, you know, people are taking, you know, the boys are taking showers for the first time all week, you know, and uh, yeah, so there, there's, there was definitely that dynamic to the, uh, you know, male, female dynamic there. But, uh, but yeah, to, to your point, you know, understanding kind of the different ways that we can all be, you know, I mean, it's, um, you know, of course, there's the jock types and the very athletic types, and then the more creative types. And, uh, you know, seeing that at a young age too, you know, and people really from, from all around the world, uh, you know, I, I was able to say, you know, from a young age, you know, that's not, you know, I, I could look at somebody and say, you know, um, you know, not just Japanese people, you know, who, you know, I could say, well, that's Keijido, you know, or that's Takao, you know, or, and I know who they are. And I know they're very differences of, uh, you know, differences in a uh, personality. So, right. you know, looking well beyond kind of just that, that first level cultural layer, you know, um, is something I was able to experience, yeah, uh, up to college and then in college, spending a year at the Shisha University and then after college, two years on the JET program, back to New York for 10 years to develop my professional mm -hmm. kind of discipline. And then back to Japan in 2007, where I've now been uh, living kind of uh, stably for the past, what is it, 14 years or so. And I mean, I think uh, on your to your point that you mentioned that you you didn't just see a Japanese kid. I mean, mm -hmm. you go to camp with these or, or a Nigerian kid, right? You, you mm -hmm. end up getting to know their individual unique parts of their personality, of where yeah. they're from, of what they like. And then you have fun together. And I think, I mean, one of the reasons I picked the name Enjoy for the business is to really to it. say, yeah. we want to we enjoy the diversity that's out there and mm -hmm. we want to enjoy innovation, but we also want to yeah. enjoy each other's diversity so that we can see the individual and move beyond the stereotypes. Oh yeah. I think you, you don't enjoy it until you really see the yeah. full individual and say, Oh, right. that person's fun. And I want to, I want to go to camp and do yeah. sports with them or do fishing with them or do canoeing or, or arts or crafts or whatever it is. And you bond, right? You bond to the activities. So then you're no longer just a, a caricature of that country's mm -hmm. yeah, culture. Definitely. Definitely. Um, so being able to kind of experience that, understand that at a young age, um, changed the trajectory of my life. You know, um, yeah, and I know, you know, when I first had that opportunity to come to Japan at age 13 and I went home to my parents and I said, hey, mom, dad, we've got this program that I could go to Japan with. I'd like to apply. And the first answer was, oh, but that's so far away, son. You know, and I gave it up for a little bit until one day I'm called into the principal's office to say, hey, we have this program, why don't you reconsider? And and then went home and my parents kind of put their hands up and say, okay. And uh, yeah, and all these but years you needed, later. You needed that extra nudge from also the principal, which is good because I mean, we, yeah. we underestimate that we, it takes a village. We need positive influences towards. Right you know global-minded culture and exchanging with other people mm -hmm. who are different and taking yeah. risks to go yeah. taking a risk of going mm -hmm. abroad and doing something new right we need mm -hmm. support for those choices in yeah. our home life and you know in our in our in our our school life i mean catherine last week talked about you know the importance of her home life and having those her choices right. supported by her home and her family and her brothers and and it's so pivotal right but also if you don't get it at home then hopefully you get it at school and it nudges you in that right direction so definitely yeah. So many adults, I think, yeah. mentor children real yeah. time, right? Yeah. Um, you also have spoken about, you know, your New Yorker upbringing mm -hmm. and how sometimes there is a, you know, birds of a feather flocking togetherness mm -hmm. in a way that's maybe not so interesting and that you, you, you chose to move away from. Can you talk to me about that? Well, I think probably two aspects of that. Um, I still say... I, I still always tell the story. I think, you know, the, the biggest culture shock of my life was not moving from the United States to Japan. I say it was moving from New York City to Western Massachusetts for college during freshman year. And uh, just, you know, I think 
anybody going to college for the first year, there's, there's a bit of an adjustment. But um, I, it, it was the first time I came into recognition of kind of my New York identity in that I had a New York accent. Um, I think I still in my freshman year, I still had a bit of a gold chain, which I was wearing. You know? um, my, hair, my hair was short then more by uh, you know, choice rather than you know, right now where I'm going bald, but uh, you know, a little spiky. So I get to college and I had this kind of New York demeanor you know, and I just didn't really understand that I had this New York demeanor. So I think over freshman year, I was kind of a, a trend in a transition to kind of a different demeanor. So that's even maybe what I was thinking on the inside and my exterior was going to become more in, into alignment. Um, so that was one thing, just sort of recognizing that difference in myself. But I think the, you know, the other point is maybe, um, you know, growing up and growing up where I did in New York City um, in Staten Island, I grew up in a relatively kind of white, you know, neighborhood. But among white people too, we were kind of either uh, Italian, Irish, or Jewish. And I, I'm of you know Jewish descent, and so I had a bar mitzvah. I went to Hebrew school, and I did have you know some friends within kind of the Jewish circle as a result of that. But I never kind of accepted that because there's kind of a born into identity that that's the identity that I need to sort of take all my life. And that's the group of people I need to be with just by default. I wouldn't call it a rebellion, but I think counterbalancing that message of, um, you know, sticking together with your kind, if, you know, I don't, it's kind of a, not, not the nicest term versus seeking out people that are from different countries, different cultures, speak different languages, I definitely, through the experience I just explained, you know, had more of a proclivity towards that. And, uh, right. and that's, you know, and that pretty much has become a big part of my identity, uh, even to today. And I think it's interesting. I mean, we, particularly when I think we're based in Japan, and I think we'll talk about this later too, mm -hmm. in more depth, but there tends to be kind of a dichotomy around you're either sort of Japanese or you're foreigner. And often foreigner is really subliminally signaling whiteness often, right? Yeah. Um, white Americanness almost even. Um, and yet it's interesting that of course in, you know, white America, and even if we speak about, you know, uh, European descent, uh, white Canada, in Montreal, you see that too. You see that there's a diversity of whiteness in the city in terms of how Mm -hmm. white white communities don't identify as white they, they identify as italian canadian right you know greek canadian jewish yeah. canadian uh irish canadian and so yeah. in montreal you would have these very clear neighborhoods and when i was at university i lived in the sort of in-between zone of the greek orthodox greek the hasidic jewish and the and the uh, italian community kind of in that sort of some you know overlapping areas um, and, and you would see these distinct neighborhoods that I think mm -hmm. we maybe, maybe is sort of set in time in the 1970s, 80s, 90s, that was more the case. And then eventually more multiculturalism has really moved those neighborhoods to be fully diversified and to mix a little bit more, but there still are some set boundaries around that. But how does that, I mean, we often fail to problematize the idea that whiteness is a cultural identity because it's not right. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it's it's your skin color, but as you suggest, back in the day, there were distinctions that to be a part of the Italian community was different from the Greek community or the Jewish community of New York. Mm -hmm. how, did, how did that play out in terms of schools and was there bullying across those different groups in the school grounds or, mm -hmm. you know, how did that play out? I, I'm gonna, I'm, I think my, my overall experience is kind of, more on the neutral side and I, I don't have so many you know uh, memories of so much but I do remember kind of you know we, we live on a block you know it's a block of houses and uh, yeah I think growing up there is kind of a recognition of you know which which family is the Irish family which is the Italian family which is the Jewish family you know and then it comes Christmas time and you know the 
the houses that are celebrating Christmas have, you know, the lights up and then the Jewish family house is the least colorful, you know, unless you have a menorah in the window. So the, those kind of things, you know, become um, aware, you know, people are aware, or maybe, maybe occasionally, you know, you, you might say, oh, here's my friend, here's my Jewish friend, or here's my, you know, and somebody might introduce you that way, um, you know, if you're getting into you know, a different group. But, but ultimately, I mean, I think, um, I'm just, I think I'll just sum it all up to say that default kind of identity, that kind of default sense of this is who you need to be with, this is how you need to live, mm. is not something that from that young age I kind of accepted, which put me on a different trajectory and, you know, makes me feeling very comfortable living where I live now, which is Tokyo, Japan, you know, and I yeah. am very happy to say when I take business trips, you know, I, I say, you know, people say, where are you from? And I could say, oh, I come from Japan. I came from Japan, come from Japan. Yeah. But then, oh, you know, originally I come from the United States. I come from New York. There's and always I, that extra question. You know, but where are yeah. you really from? Because yeah. you can't actually yeah. be from Japan if you are, you know, right. visibly yeah. white. And there's yeah. that tension, right? Mm -hmm. But now you know, maybe to shift to slightly, but one thing I'm thinking is, you know, being, being a non-Japanese person here in Japan, um, by definition or by word, we are gaijin, we are soto no ningen, right? Outsiders, and right? And Japan <laughs> is very much about soto, uchi and soto, right? So external uh, and internal for those who don't speak yeah. Japanese of our, amongst our listeners, yeah. Right? So, you know, and there, sometimes, I think that there's sort of a lamenting among the foreign community that, you know, foreigners are not fully integrated into Japanese society. But I just don't actually don't see it that way, or I don't, I don't feel that way either. I feel, you know, we, we have a very nice position here in Japan in that, you know, and sometimes in being an expat means sometimes we can be very fully integrated. You know, there, there have been more than enough times when I find myself to be the only non-Japanese person in a room, and it's a completely Japanese context. And, you, do, you know, you try to blend in a little bit, but then at the same point, I never feel the need to be Japanese, you know, um, don't need to even want to aspire to being Japanese. I, I like the fact that I can be non-Japanese, but find a way to integrate with my Japanese colleagues and friends as myself and that's the different value that we bring right so so this this kind of finding this balance in japan i think is a is a struggle for some and it's a challenge for many to be able to be accepting of the fact that you will always be a gaijin a soto no hito to some extent but you can find ways where you could be integrated but then at the same point you could take a step back and say but you know what I am not Japanese, so I'm not going to do that, or I'm not going to do it exactly like that, or I will take a different approach, and that's okay, you know. So, I think being non-Japanese in Japan, for the most part, it's a good thing. Well, and I think right there's there's ways in which there's the maybe <clears throat> formal legal belonging of not having a passport, citizenship, uh, the, and the legal political rights that uh, are associated with that. And that's one level of in, inevitably being uh, external until dual nationality is, is an option for those of us who are permanent residents and would aspire to have those yeah. two loyalties be really true in our legal and political rights. Yeah. And being able to vote and, and have a voice in, in those systems. Um, yeah. Because it affects, you know, all of what we do as business people, it affects our children going through the, you know, the school system. But there's also, I guess, the element of how do we disaggregate or take take apart and this is i think a process for the rewa era to really mm -hmm. struggle with is how do we think about building a rewa era conception of japanese-ness mm -hmm. that is not tied to racial identity that it yeah. could be you're you're a member of this country yeah without yeah, that yeah. without that signaling yeah. racial content or mm -hmm. even i think there's always going to be a cultural co content yeah because i think there's a culturalness to this country 
that foreigners also take on. And when they immigrate, like all migrants, they take on, you know, the cultural, you know, yeah. benefits of that, of that host culture and that host yeah. country. And they make that a part of themselves mm -hmm. in a mm -hmm. positive way. Yeah. And so we can have the cultural Japanese-ness and the linguistic Japanese-ness, but if we could dis you know, disassociate it from the racial component, it opens up so much more room for, I think, Reiwa Japan to build their population base because I think there's yeah. so, and, and the sense of who is Uchi, like the yeah. sense symbolically yeah. of who is then allowed to mm -hmm. really be seen as insider, regardless of skin tone or, mm -hmm. Yeah. or those attributes and if we can separate that out we really would shift i think and move the dial in terms of oh so you know yeah. there's different people from different ethnocultural racial makeup who all aspire to being a part of the japanese cultural mm -hmm. glo global you know focused um space and cosmopolitan society that is japan because yeah. it is vibrant and it thrives yeah. and it thrives because of all that internal yeah. diversity so, so Jackie, i think that's an exciting idea yeah, let me question. I mean, yes, okay, maybe, you know, you're right. From the political standpoint, I mean, I, get, I, I think if we wanted to get Japanese citizenship, there is a process we could follow as well, right? So, so politically For speaking, but, Naturalizing, you know, if you let go of yeah. your own nationality. But, you know, getting the permanent resident card, you know, being a permanent resident, for the most part is, as I see it, it's kind of the best of both worlds. I mean, I get to maintain my US passport, but I also get the right to live here. With the one exception of there was that period of time a few months ago when you know the COVID pandemic started. And I think it was the policy that if we as permanent resident people even were to leave Japan, we would not be able to get back into and that's, Japan. That and continues. Course, that actually that, continues. Really? Does it? For, for certain nationalities, it's okay. not clear, clear right. cut. So not everyone has easy access of re-entering Japan okay. if you're a permanent resident. So that's yeah. that's one mm -hmm. issue. And I think the political okay. voice, political voice yeah. being the other area. But putting putting now aside the politics of what is nationality, right? Mm. By the very, I mean, for what we're talking about now, about the need for, you know, kind of an integration. And, you know, we're talking about new diversities within Japan. I, I'm, I'm going to venture to say, I think we're moving there. Japan is getting to that point. I mean, and, and we're, and it's getting to that point whenever anybody like you, me, you know, are living in Japan and we make a life here because yeah, we are adapting. I mean, and as I said before, you know, I made a comment, I don't need to be Japanese. I don't need to, but I, what I meant by that is I don't need to completely shed all of my experience and identity that I had no. before I came here, of course. But we absolutely have to adapt. Right? So I'm, I'm recently I'm creating a, a training program right now. So I'm going to just speak from that yeah, in a three-step. It's it's called appreciation. It's the three steps of thriving in Japan. To thrive in Japan requires first appreciation of your context, which you know is about appreciating your the culture, cultural elements. So you know, understanding uchi soto, girito on, um, you know, the difference between using san sama, you know, or kun, you know, to refer to people and understanding all these different, you the know, cultural relations. Polite speak, the titles, exactly. the obligation. So, and so that creates the context though. So we have to first appreciate the context and then we need to figure out how to adapt. And I think everybody that lives here needs to ask themselves those questions which of the which elements of the Japanese context do I want to make my own? Do I appreciate enough that I will adapt to it and change in a certain way? Mm -hmm. And then at the same point, where do I maybe put up, you know, put my hand up politely and say, that's that's not for me. I draw the line at natto. <laughs> you know, um, everybody always says natto is good for you. I say, I don't care. I don't need it. I don't like it. I, I always joked, I said, as soon as I start eating natto, that means I'm going to have to go to the embassy and turn in my U.S. passport. I don't want to do that, right? <laughs> and there are so many Japanese people who don't like natto. So we, and are, all. In good, and we are in good company. <laughs> exactly. You know, but, you know, like even today on the on the TV, what's, it's an interesting um, story is, um, you know, because of the COVID restrictions, restaurants are closed. There's a lot of, you know, people are drinking 
on the streets and hanging out, you know, and they, they showed how the Kamogawa in Kyoto is uh, being dirtied and people are leaving their trash mm -hmm. and they're doing the same thing in Tokyo. And, and first I look at that and I think, well, th this is the level of reporting in Japan. But when you think about it, when you're out in public and if you have a pet bottle, you have your garbage, are you going to just flick it on the, the street and leave it on the street? No, right? So that's, you know, an adaptation. I mean, I know for sure that until I find the right receptacle for my garbage, I will carry it. And if it means bringing it all the way home, I will do that. In other places, maybe you didn't worry about that. You just threw it where you could. But, you know, part of being in Japan and being a good shakaijin person of society is recognizing that there are these kind of adaptations that you need to take. So, um and I'm not sure if that's the best example, but you know, it's an example of just how clearly, you know, ideas about the the external world and your relationship to it and the rest of society sort of changes. And if you're going to be in Japan, you definitely need to adapt in in certain ways. I think that's a beautiful example of one of the things I appreciate so much about the sense of civic space in Japan or public space as a shared space that no one person or one group can just take over because they're louder or mm. you can't yeah. colonize, yeah. you know, public spaces are yeah. not up for grabs for the yeah. loudest person to right. just dominate in. Yeah. It is a shared space. And or they, they shouldn't be. But Should when be. people are doing that, when people are leaving their trash around or you know, before COVID, it was, you know, summertime at the, you know, at the river or something. And they, they show how people have left all their barbecue garbage there. And that makes news, right? So it makes news because you're not supposed to do it. You're supposed that's to not think the, about that's, others, right? That's right? not the good life. The good life here is that you share your public space and yeah. it's a shared space. And I yeah. love that, that yeah. I think it's an important part of political philosophy right. that we've lost about civic sharing mm -hmm. you know yeah. of, of what is held in common yeah can so, i ask you about where and how you pivoted your global-minded or cosmopolitan view hmm. from from a business perspective because i know you you worked in new york for i think it was yeah. new york for many many years yeah. and then yeah. you you decided to go on an entrepreneurial journey I mean, those are interesting pathways. Why mm -hmm. did you come back to Japan from yeah. that journey? Well, I, I mean, if I summarize my experience quickly, I, I've, I have worked in different locations. I've worked in different companies and I've had different um, roles, but I've been following the same theme throughout my career. So uh, after having I graduated from college in 1997 so i came to japan it was the jet program and i realized you know jet program was great for what it was i did the uh first year i did the the alt teaching in a school second year i was the cir the coordinator of international relations working in a city hall office and all of that was great but i knew it wasn't leading to any kind of um, career per se but it gave me a nice experience mm -hmm. so in my mid-20s when I'm kind of uh, having a little bit of angst about what I should do with life, I thought, well, I could move to Tokyo or I'd just go back to my home country and kind of get my, you know, get my roots there. So I, I did go back to the United States, but I was able to pivot in a nice way there. I found a kind of a small entrepreneurial consulting company that was focused on the Japanese company market in primarily New York, uh, but in the Eastern seaboard area, and uh, was able to write to the president at that time and say, uh, you know, here I am. I, I don't know anything about HR consulting, but I have some of this uh, cultural background and this experience, and I'd, I'd love to do something Japan-related. I'm not sure what it is. And so entered that company, and for a few years, I worked in New York City, and then I was able to go to California and start up some business in California. So I got my first kind of entrepreneurial taste mm. when I was still, it was kind of, you know, working within that company um, and still focusing on Japanese companies. So I was developing my professionalism as an HR 
kind of manager consultant, um, learning through the eyes of, you know, particularly the Japanese expatriates who uh, were sent from Japan to manage in the United States. So after having done that for a few years and having a little bit of feeling maybe imposter syndrome in that I'm teaching about HR and I'm saying, this is what you should do based upon what I've learned from my, my boss, you know, who is the, uh, the head consultant, I realized, wait, I need the internal experience. So uh, I left the consulting world to go work inside a, a, um, a customer organization where the president was offered a job. And so then I got to understand the inside of the company. And I did that. So I got that facet and did that. Insider, outsider. Yep, inside, outside, right. You know, and then uh, 2007, my wife and I, uh, for personal reasons, uh, were deciding this could be a good time to return to Japan. Found, did my job search and was able to find a position with Fast Retailing, the parent company of Uniqlo. Mm. Um, I had first did interviews from New York, I had a, a video interview, came to Tokyo for the final interview with, well, the HR Yakuin on one day. And then the, the, the final interview was the next day with Yanai-san, who is you know, the president of fast retailing and the richest man in Japan. And- uh, Not intimidating? That, yeah, not, not so intimidating, but I, I kind of, I, I, I made sure the previous day when I spoke with the HR Yakuin, I understood that if they were bringing me to that final interview with Jan Aysan, um, it was their reputation as well, right? They wouldn't put me in front of him if they didn't think I was, I was good enough. So I, I made sure that I got some sense of um, how to approach Jan Aysan on that day, what to say, what not to say. So uh, I got that and yeah, a few minutes after a few minutes after that interview, I was given the offer of employment. So was able to move back to Japan and be, but I believe, I think I can say it was the first non-Japanese person to work in the group HR department of fast retailing. I wasn't the first Skyjean at all to work in fast retailing, but I was the first in, in HR. Did that for a few years, was able to understand the headquarter operations and having headquarter operations, overseas subsidiary operation experience, HR experience throughout. In 2010, I said, now I'm gonna try my hand at being an entrepreneur entrepreneur myself and uh, started, founded Gramercy Engagement Group, which I've been running for the past 11 years. What was the challenge you were seeking in shifting to this new business of your own? Um, you know, it was, it was I mean, I, I definitely, when I had worked initially in the consulting company in New York City and then went to California, uh, to start business there. I definitely had that flair for trying to start my own thing. I just liked the challenge of starting from a zero base. You know, when you start something from nothing and you can build it to something, you know, there, there's satisfaction in that. Um, I think that was probably the first impetus for it. Um, and then from there, timing was, was right um, in that I think working in fast retailing and Uniqlo's expansion overseas meant that the headquarter operations needed to transform itself from being that very domestic only focused you know, corporate headquarters to a corporate headquarters that's really managing a worldwide business. Even to this day, there are many Japanese companies that are still struggling to pivot in that way. Yes. But what I was experiencing at fast retailing became kind of those insights I got there were very much uh, applicable to a lot of companies generally. So I was able to incorporate some of that insight into my initial consulting, which then also as I'm doing that and I realized companies are requiring, you know, training and facilitation, I was able to expand kind of my own kind of professional base of what I do to say I'm a consultant trainer, facilitator. And now more recently, I'm getting more into executive coaching and I can say I'm an executive coach as well. What is the pivot that you mentioned and that is involved in truly, instead of becoming a, instead of having a Japanese company with overseas acquisitions, but really mm -hmm. stays as a Japanese company. Yep. Compared to a Japan based mm -hmm. geolocation Japan 
based company that is a global company yeah. and yeah. in terms of mindset and yeah. they like tamatama nihon ni iru like we happen yeah. to be based yeah. geo geolocation in japan yeah. but I, it's I a global you. company yeah. what is what is that i want to i want to just sort of i think you're you're describing kind of a spectrum you're describing the spectrum of being a very Japan, japanese company that just has some overseas business to being a you know a mu kokseki you know having almost no nationality i'd like to say i mean i think you know even with with a few exceptions any company still maintains its corporate identity in its original country of establishment yeah. but so so a japanese company should still be an unapologetic Japanese company. In that, for that point, one thing that I've learned from working with a lot of Japanese companies and some of the, the projects I do is the Kigyo Rinen Shinto, which is the Kigyo Rinen is the corporate philosophy and Shinto is kind of the dissemination of that philosophy um, to the overseas subsidiaries. And Many Japanese companies have pride in their history, of course, they have pride in their values. And when they're able to express those values equally to their overseas subsidiaries, the people in the overseas subsidiaries, 99% of the time have shown appreciation for that. Oh, wow, this is an idea that came from Japan. This is how, this is how the company was established. And they develop more of a sense of identity with a recognition that it is a Japanese company and it has its, its origin here. So in that way, I'm saying, yes, still be a Japanese company, but now maybe to get to your question, right? This, the challenge for all globally operating Japanese companies right now is to, I'll say, recognize the gray in the world there's still too much black and white in terms of operations. So what do I mean by that? Um, so many times still, when I can start talking to a company and you know, you, I work a lot with the corporate functions, right? So from a corporate function, we even say HR, we'll take the HR corporate function. The HR department, let's say for argument's sake, could have a hundred people in it. I'd say 75% or more, are all focused on what's happening in Japan only. Their entire area of work is the domestic market. If you have an HR department, if, if there's anybody who's focusing on the overseas business, the overseas subsidiaries, there'll, there'll be normally a, a sub team of the HR department. And then the work that they do is primarily expatriate handling, you know, selecting people, sending them overseas, doing pre-departure training, and you know, manage. So they're still they're dealing with the overseas business, but they're dealing with the expatriates. A very small percentage might be thinking about who the people working overseas are in the subsidiaries, and how to develop and retain those best talent. This is not good. It has to flip. So this is this has been my message to a lot of the companies I've been working with for all these years is that. Yes, you do have a domestic HR function, which probably needs to, it'll always stay like payroll. Payroll will never be globalized. And it doesn't, it shouldn't be, and it can't be because payment of salary is done on a very local basis. And of course you might have union issues or you know um, different. So you definitely have a domestic HR, but the global headquarters should be that global headquarters. It should be that, what's happening in Japan is just one small sliver of the totality of what the function is looking at. And there should be much more integration. You know, when you're looking at your top leaders, your top leaders should be a pool of people that are coming from the headquarters as well as from overseas subsidiaries. Overseas subsidiary people should be given the opportunity to take positions in maybe in the headquarters in Japan, so bring the overseas people to Japan, or in other, you know, subsidiaries, you know, they become third party, uh, you know, third country nationals. That dynamic global talent management is being done in some companies for sure, 
but not nearly enough companies if you look at their global footprint. So that's my sense of where the Japanese company needs to change in terms of its operations and in terms of recognizing that seishain, tadashi shain, you know, seishain basically means tadashi shain, right? Like a, a correct you know, full-time you know, employee, employee. And, you know, from a, in most of the, you know, delineation still, seishain is a group of people that have been hired in Japan, probably as Shinsotsu new graduates. And the people that are working overseas are no more than just NS or locally hired national staff. And most of the companies that I, I, when I start working with them, their assumption is, well, you know, they're NS, so they don't want to do anything more than, you know, maybe, maybe the highest they would get is to be a top manager in the subsidiary if they no longer send expatriates from Japan. So there might be some localization, Hmm. but what happens is the people that are really the global talent will realize, wait, the company's not giving me those opportunities. They're not even recognizing me. Sayonara. There's nowhere to go up the food chain all right. the way to headquarters yeah. because of the way it's yeah. constructed internally. Yeah. And, so, and so when, you know, so really what we're talking about here is kind of a global talent management and development, yeah. you know, structure where the headquarter people clearly need to focus on Japan. But at the same time, they're focusing on Japan. They also need to be focusing on what's happening around the world in terms of talent management and governance, compliance. Of course. Um, but still, many of the companies are saying, but our purview is right here in Japan because this is what we do. Well, anyway. this is where you're starting. You're talking my language. And I feel like we're, we're on the same page because, of course, the diversity, equity, you know, inclusion, innovation conversation is all about diverse talent acquisition, retention, um, and then mobilization to hopefully all levels of the pipeline. And mm-hmm. we do see high levels of attrition of women and of, and of global talent yeah. because there is no room to go all the way up and to be seen and accepted as an insider who will be a leader, the next mm-hmm. generation yeah. leader of the company. And so your only choice is to step off yeah. and to go to a different yeah. company, right? Mm-hmm. And that institutional knowledge yeah. and organizational knowledge then is just constantly bleeding out yeah. of these companies who really would want to retain that talent yeah. and mobilize it, but it does require a shift. And I'll ask you if I'm mm-hmm. understanding your point. You mentioned that it's sort of, you know, HR function and global HR is a subset within that. Whereas yeah. I feel like I'm, I feel like you're saying it should be global HR. Yeah. And Japanese yeah. HR is here and there's each Absolutely. acquisition abroad yeah. or each foreign yeah. entity has a subset for that piece, mm-hmm. but it's all got a global mindset and broader big picture yeah. vision around how to use all that talent across mm-hmm. the whole ecosystem. Yeah, yeah. That I mean, this is. and I mean, it is exactly as you're saying. I mean, it's basically if you're if you're looking at your your headquarter operation, your headquarter operation, whether you know, and if it's a Japanese company, it's in Japan. Now, a few years ago, some companies were beginning to say, oh, but maybe to be globally competitive, we need to shift our headquarters overseas. And I've actually seen with some companies, they, they create this really strange power, power politic because they take some functions and they say, well, this function will be headquartered in the United States, or this function is headquartered in Singapore. But they still have their their major executives still residing in Tokyo, so that doesn't work. It just it doesn't work out nicely. So, I, I believe that Japanese companies can and should retain their corporate headquarters in Japan, and again be unapologetically a Japanese company. But yeah, the corporate headquarter functions, marketing, sales, you know, R and D, you know, HR, finance, those are corporate global corporate functions and in so doing and create to create but to create that you know it's, it's easy to create on paper but yes. to create it in reality and this is this is what i find to be so fascinating is when i can look at similar companies in the same industry you know or back up for a moment we could say well but brian every industry has a different business model every industry has a different approach so you know it's going to depend upon the industry, except it doesn't because I've seen companies within the same industry 
And I can see how they take a radically different approach. And so what does it come down to? It comes down to who's in charge who, and what that person's experience was. What did they do when they were 13 years old? What did they do when they were 16? What did they do in college? Did they, did they live overseas? Did they not? Have they had experiences to sort of open themselves up or have they only focused their entire career on the Japanese market? In which case, once they become bucho or honbucho or yakuin, right? All of the high levels. Division you know? right, director. Yeah. Unless they've had some kind of experience that opens them up, they'll still see things in terms of that binary dichotomy of kokonai versus kaigai, you know, Japan domestic versus everything overseas. But the reality is there's a gray. The gray is, we need, and we need to sort of constantly be intertwining. You know, you, you need to be able to pick up the phone and answer in Japanese and hang up the phone and then get on a Zoom with your co global colleagues and speak in English. And you need that, that flexibility to pivot. And right now, that's still the area of challenge for many. I mean, I'm hearing two things um, that I think are is so exciting in terms of moving beyond, like you say, the black and white dichotomy that things that are domestic are domestic and therefore everything global is outside Japan as if globalness lives outside Japan when globalness needs to also and does, yeah. frankly, yeah. live in Japan. And you, you've shared to me about this point, mm -hmm. but how do we then build and have recognition and appreciation mm -hmm. for the globalness within Japan yeah. and does it yeah. really also depend on high functioning bilingual leadership what extent do you yes think that no. is a yes and no so so here's something I, I've, I ask this question when I do training a lot or I start with this and I say um, what is the meaning of global and for the most part, what people and you know, in the word global in its in its regular parlance, wherever I think we are, you know, normally, well, in Japan, global is normal. People will respond, oh, that's overseas, that's out there. Because we are domestic, we are here in Japan. And I say, well, hold on, really? What what's the meaning of global? Mm, okay, overseas. Well, no, what's a globe? Globe. You picture this. Chikyu, the earth. Where's Japan? Is Japan located on the moon, on Mars? No, and Japan's right here. Exactly. And where's America? And where's Europe? Okay, we're all here. Now, our position on the globe is different, you know, longitude, latitude, but is there any specific place on the globe that is more global than any place else? No. So logically, Global is not out there. Global is here, there, everywhere. Global is us, it's where we live. So, and I say that sometimes in jest, but I think I, I, make, I use it to, to make a point. Global does not mean getting on a plane and leaving Japan. You know, for you and me, we're having a beautifully global experience every day that we're here because we're living on the globe and we're living in a different place. So, you know, we're having interactions with people so the point is this, global does not, it's not out there. Global really is a mindset too. And so I think what that mindset is, as I'm defining it and also some of the trainings I provide is I've, I've come up with nine different traits, right? And, but, you know, one of them is inter, a sense of interconnectedness, you know? So, you know, the, if we're looking Uchi and Soto, Soto, you know, Uchi, what is the biggest Uchi? The biggest, you know, in-group is mm -hmm. humanity, right? So, and, and of course, I mean, there are Japanese people that get this. I mean, this is, this is you know, but, but there are many times people that, because they've lived in constructs where we need to sort of organize things and we, you know, it's very easy to sort of say in and out, you know, domestic versus global, but no. So we're all part of that same humanity, that interconnectedness. And if you're doing a global business, you absolutely have to have that, that sense because you know, there, there's no part of your business that is more important than the other as soon as you hang your corporate banner somewhere, especially from a governance point of view nowadays, right? What happens in your business in Africa can have a major impact on your brand back at, in the home country, you know, or, you know, where, wherever it is, right? So it's a mindset. Now, and I feel like, correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like the word global is used as a shorthand 
to really mean you have a cosmopolitan viewpoint that goes beyond your own cultural and linguistic rootedness and upbringing to think about countries around the world and mm -hmm. integrate multiple cultures yeah. and multi multicultural interculturalism and potentially multilingualism mm -hmm. but at a minimum even if you're not multilingual you're intercultural in the sense of seeing that the world doesn't just result, revolve around your own cultural identity mm -hmm. and national mm -hmm. Yep. rooted situatedness yep. and that yeah. cosmopolitan identity we talk about in political science and political philosophy as the root of you know high mobility cultures yeah. and particularly yeah. you know advanced uh you know professional classes that have high cosmopolitan value in terms of mobility around mm -hmm. the world for work but it's not everybody who's experiencing that yet of course it is no. really tied to no. education levels often too i mean but or it's 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 education it's it's the experience i mean from that standpoint too there clearly are a lot of places in america that are not global because they only see what's what's there in front of them in america you know and so i mean it's so and you know so i think every country probably has people that have that cosmopolitan that thinking that range right. um and you know does everybody in japan need to have that most likely not. But if you're working in a multinational company and you're working in the corporate headquarters, right? Um, and and here, here's probably my final point too. You know, clearly what we run into is, okay, we run into the language barrier. And so what I try to tell the people that I work with is to get them over this, this, this language hurdle is they need to re reshape their relationship with English because English is this global language. And I say, you use a computer, right? How'd you learn to a computer? You know, you, you, why do you use a computer? Well, it's a tool. Okay. And did you have classes in it? And I kind of taught myself, you know, because I realized it was an important tool. Well, isn't English just a tool as well? But you see, English for Japanese people to this point has been a test or it's been something it's been held over them. And it's never been what you use as a tool of communication to increase your interconnectedness but that's what i try to tell people that's what it is you need to get you need to re-establish re a relationship with english where it's not held over you it's it's an implement it's a tool that you use in order to make connections with people so and hopefully it's a tool that brings ultimate joy through those connections yeah oh and right that's the point right you know as soon as you create connections and you can find those similarities right so and that's, you know, so that's what's necessary now in, in Japan. So, and it's, and it's sometimes it's about dealing with the foreigners who are, of course, at the overseas subsidiary. Now, more and more, it's about dealing with the people that are right here in front of you, working side by side, finding your interconnectedness, finding the way of working together, your commonalities. As also as foreigners, we are doing the same and we're adapting so that ultimately what the Japanese company needs for its success in this era is absolutely strong Japanese leaders, but also strong Japanese leaders walking, walking hand in hand, let's get that image, or walking together, shoulder to shoulder, side by side, whatever it is, with non-Japanese leaders and non-Japanese people that appreciate the Japanese context and can go together. So exactly. this is what I'm trying to do in my work. I'm just trying to create the sense that the Japanese company should again be unapologetically Japanese, but at the same point needs to be integrative, you know, and inclusive of those people that are not Japanese so that the Japanese strengths can be enhanced and in, in some areas where they don't have that perspective or that skill, it can be made up for by the non-Japanese person. If the Japanese company can reestablish itself with this mindset, Japanese companies have a lot to give to the world. And I'm, so much. I'm extremely happy to sort of be doing my work from a Japan base. Um, well, that's a fabulous, yeah. fabulous takeaway, Brian, and fabulously inspiring. And certainly I know that Gramercy Engagement Group and Enjoy, we're going to have lots of fun together doing things yep. out in this space. Enjoy. Um, yeah. <laughs> and it's going to be fun and disruptive and, you know, positive uh, in terms of, like you say, giving space to that role for Japan to shine yeah. 
through global Japanese-ness, if you will. And I think that's that's going to be the Rewa era's next yeah. contribution, I think, to thank the globe. You. So thank you for thank a fabulous conversation yeah. and learning. Yeah. Um, your book is can so I, exciting. Can I just plug that you know? too? Plug yeah, of course, so, the author. I mean, so I think everything everything I'm talking it? about is somehow included in this book, which this I book. published last year with uh, Waseda Dagaku Professor Shiraki. We wrote Ego de Jinji, which is Nichie Taiyaku ni Yoru Jisen Teki Jinji, which is a completely Japanese English bilingual book about so exciting. pretty much my experiences in HR. Highly recommend it to everyone. And yeah. um, I think, you know, on we're going to be certainly probably circling back and coming back to Brian several times for things in the future. Yeah. So we will hear from you again. Thank you very much. Thank you for these really important insights on how we build out space for diversities and for commonalities, because that's what mm -hmm. we hold together, right? And this is going to move the dial. Um, I'll just give a quick shout out because we are slightly over time, but I want to give a quick shout out to the Enjoy team for all their help really creating Thank the live you. stream, yep. all of the promotional materials and all of these beautifully diverse uh, people in my team who really help and support that this becomes a possibility for us to share with all the Enjoy Thought partners in our network. So on that note, thank you so much, Brian. Thank you, Jackie. Thank you very much. Imagine a world without prejudice, bullying, or fear. Imagine a world where our individuality is respected by all our peers. Inclusion and equity are more than words or just a ploy. They are workplaces rich with diversity, creating worlds we all enjoy. Imagine a better world where we all can live free and play where the spirit of teamwork and solidarity give hope and light the way. Good business isn't just profits or pushing for sales. Good business must strive to be just as it scales. Good business is planting a seed in a visionary trail to foster an environment where diverse abilities prevail. Let's build that new world in solidarity. Diversity rocks innovation. Let's build solutions for equality to bring hope and transformation. Let's honor co-creation, honor individuality, with a vision for togetherness beyond screens and virtual reality. All it takes is a little to change the world a lot. Money comes and goes, but legacy isn't forgotten.